The doctrine of unconditional election is so different from what many of you grew up with that you find it hard to believe that it's in the Bible and you find it hard to feel that it's good news. There's an intellectual issue and there's an emotional issue, which means that I'm swimming against a doubly difficult current Sunday after Sunday in Romans 9 because I believe with all of my heart it is in the Bible and I believe with all of my heart it is good news. And so I have an impossible task. But all things are possible with God and so I want us to pray before we proceed. So let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer is that this people downtown and this people here in Roseville would see what is really there in the scriptures that you inspired. Secondly, I pray that they would understand it as much as a fallen, finite human being can understand it. Third, I pray that we would all together embrace it as precious, more precious than gold and more pleasant than honey and more practical than all the books of theology or help at Barnes and Noble. And I pray, fourthly, that the effect of this embrace of this truth would be radical, sacrificial, loving, servant lives, ready to lay themselves down to bring the gospel to those who are not saved. Whether it's in Somaliland or Indonesia or Pakistan or Uzbekistan or Ivory Coast or across the street or across the cubicle. Father, forbid that we would be paralyzed by doctrinal preoccupations. We believe that these things are in the Bible for the sake of radical, Christ-like, God-exalting, mission-advancing, justice-pursuing, soul-winning reasons. And so I'm asking for the impossible, Lord, all of those four steps to see what's there, to understand it, to cherish it, and then to be so transformed by it that we lay down our lives to love people into the kingdom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one main point this morning and then four ways of going about it. The main point is God is righteous or just in unconditional election. That's the point of verse 14. Now, here are my four ways of pursuing it. First, I want to ask, where did this objection come from in verse 14? Is there then unrighteousness with God? Secondly, I want to give three reasons why unconditional election is good news. 
Thirdly, I want to reassert with verse 16 that the doctrine is true. And fourth, I want to understand with you as best we can the argument of verse 15 that is the foundation of the assertion in verse 14, namely that there is no unrighteousness with God in unconditional election. So that's the plan. Point one, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Or is there unrighteousness with God? I'm going to use the terms justice and righteousness interchangeably because it's the same Greek word or Hebrew word behind them. His answer is, by no means. Now, where did that objection come from? Why did anyone even think to raise the objection? Is there possibly unrighteousness with God? And Paul is responding here to what he knows people say. He's preached in enough synagogues. He's preached in enough churches. He's had enough conversations about Christ and God's way of salvation. He knows what people say. And so he writes this book. I think there are five times in the book of Romans where he asks, what then shall we say? And I know what people say. I know what you're about to say. And I'm going to try to respond and help you with that question. So it comes from what he's just said in verses 6 to 13. Now, what would that be? What is it about what he has said in verses 6 to 13 that make him think somebody is going to ask about the unrighteousness of God here? Somebody's going to ask about justice here. And, of course, the answer is verses 7 to 13. Let's just read them and you'll hear why people would ask this. Though they were not yet born, referring to Jacob and Esau, twins in the womb of Rebekah, though they were not yet born or had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, purpose of election, election might stand or might continue, not, I would add, conditionally because of works, but unconditionally because of God alone, him who calls, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. I choose before they're born. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In other words, God's favor lands on one and not the other before they're born or had done anything good or bad. Now, it might be important to clarify here something I haven't stressed as much as I perhaps should have in the previous messages on Romans 9. The issue here in election, the purpose of election might stand, is individual people and eternal destiny, not groups of people and historical roles. That's the most common way this text is gutted of its intended meaning. And you'll read it in book after book after book that the issue is not people individually and the issue is not where they wind up in eternity, the issue is groups of people like Jews and Ishmaelites and Edomites and Moabites and their historical roles, not their eternal destinies, namely, who gets the land. Things like that. That's not what is in view in Paul's mind. And we know it's not because he has set up the issue to be dealt with in verse 3 of chapter 9, namely, 
I'm weeping my eyes out and I'm in anguish and pain every day over my individual Jewish friends who are accursed and cut off from Christ within the people of Israel. This is not a question about what becomes of Israel or what becomes of Ishmaelites or Edomites. This is a question about what about my kinsmen according to the flesh within Israel. I'm a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. All twelve apostles are Jews. This is not a question about the whole totality of Jews here. This is a question about what about my friends? What about these people I love when I go into a synagogue and as you read in the book of Acts time after time after time, there's a division of the house. A few follow Paul, believe, as many as are foreordained to eternal life, believe, Acts 13, 48, and the others don't. And Paul wants to know, God, how am I to understand this? In fact, God, if you have made promises to Israel, what are we to say about your promises when so many individual Israelites are rejecting the gospel and are accursed and cut off from Christ? There is an eternal issue here, accursed and cut off from Christ, and there is an individual issue here, people within Israel, not to mention all the Gentiles who say yes or no. To the gospel. So, when you hear that argument, well, Piper's been leading you folks down the wrong path because he's been applying this to individuals in eternity when it doesn't have anything to do with individuals in eternity. You're going to hear that if you talk with people. Then take them back to verse 3 and say, how in the world does dealing with peoples help the argument that he's wrestling with in verse 3? So, the question about the justice and the righteousness of God has arisen because of the doctrine of unconditional election. Before they were born or had done anything good or evil, he favors the one and he does not the other. And they then ask, well, what about justice? What about righteousness? That's verse 14. And Paul's answer is, God is righteous. Now, that begs for an explanation, right? And so verse 15 begins with four. He's going to explain. But I'm going to skip it for the time being and make that the last point this morning. The next thing I want to do, point two in my outline, is give you three reasons for why unconditional election is good news. Because I know that emotionally, there's always more than one thing going on as you grow I I remember the days when I was being confronted with this in the fall of 1968 at Fuller Seminary as I was studying my Bible and reading Romans and reading the Sermon on the Mount and having teachers very patiently deal with this rascal who was in their face with so what questions and hard questions. And I would go home and put my elbow on either side of my Bible in the afternoon and cry my eyes out because of how my world was crumbling. And I know what it's like to walk through a shift in your vision of God. Because most people grow up in very, not, not so much doctrinally wrong churches, but doctrinally indifferent churches. This never even talked about Romans 9. It just wasn't on anybody's radar screen. But there was absorbed a kind of view of God that was different. And so you sit there and you say, well, it looks like it's there, but frankly, how could it be good news? So here are three reasons among many that... It is good news to embrace unconditional election. Number one, it is good news because it means that no unbeliever is, has ever been, or ever will be so bad, so corrupt, and so wicked that he can say to you when you 
witness to him and pray for him and cry over him, he can never say, I'm too bad to be elect. I have, I have heard many despairing sinners in my life who say, I am so, if you knew the things that I have done, you wouldn't even hold out the possibility that I could be among the elect. Now, the doctrine of unconditional election arrives in that room with tremendous good news. Because the right response to those people who are despairing is, you have no right. Who do you think you are to exalt your sin to the level of God? Who do you think you are to wallow in your despair and make your sinful will the sovereign of the universe as if you could decide what the criterion are for whether you're elect or not? Who do you think you are to blackmail God with your despair? Now that sounds negative. It lands on people shockingly with good news. You have no right to tell God He can't choose you because of your rotten, no-good, lousy life. He knew that and knows it. I've got news for you. Election is absolutely unconditional. You cannot put up against it any length or any depth of sinning in your life and conclude from that sin, I cannot have been chosen by God. That's arrogant to talk that way, in fact, in your despair and brokenness. Isn't it strange that human beings can play God while they're despairing of being favored by God? Therefore, you say to them, you may not play God with your sin. None of it proves you are not elect. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved because the Lord says in Romans 10, 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, the glory of unconditional election. Do you have to deal with someone today? I'm sure my son will be on the telephone with his wife who is in Fortaleza, Brazil, the only Christian in her family, over her father who has not awoken from a coma after the fireworks blew up in his face on New Year's Eve, has lived every day of his life as an unbeliever and as an alcoholic and will go straight to hell as far as she knows unless he wakes up and hears her pleading and believes. You got any situations like that in your life where you want, if you've got five minutes of consciousness, maybe, to be able to say, Daddy, once there was a, a thief and he spent his whole life stealing from people and ripping people off and lived totally for himself. And he got what came to him. He got strung up on a cross. And in one moment of absolutely absurd, unbelievable appeal to sovereign grace, looked at the Lord of the universe hanging with him and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And heard the most incredible words. Today, you will be with me in paradise. 
That's what you can say. Why? Because, among other reasons, election is not based on foreseen performances. It's based on God's sovereign grace unconditionally. And therefore, no thief hanging on a cross, no paralyzed alcoholic in a coma who comes out for a few minutes can ever say, I cannot have been elect. My life was debauched through and through and forever. You may never bring your despair against God like that. That's the first reason it's good news that God elects unconditionally. The second reason it's good news is that God's electing unconditionally preserves the praise of God at every level of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. So that we do not boast in ourselves and our vaunted will. We boast always at every level from election in the past until glorification in the future and all the pieces of our being saved in the middle. We boast in one thing, God's grace and not myself and my intelligence and my sensitivity and my wisdom that I somehow was smart enough to respond while others, fools that they are, didn't. Nobody will be in heaven talking like that. Nobody in heaven will take credit for their faith or their obedience. We will all be on our faces saying, you chose me, you called me, you justified me, you sanctified me, you preserved me, you raised me. It is all yours. Praise to you. And the reason that is good news is this. You were made for the joy of Praising God, not being praised. You were made to find your everlasting happiness in making much of Him, not being made much of. And oh, how the last 50 years of the West needs to hear this Truth, because you and I have been sold a bill of goods called the doctrine of self-esteem by which we have concluded mental health and love and happiness flow from being made much of either in the mirror or in the mouth of our friends. And it is a lie and you are being sold a bill of goods because that will have a very short term fix on your problem. Oh, it feels good. Oh, it feels so good to be praised. And it feels that for fallen, unregenerate people. So what grace is it to enjoy it as a saved person? It's a natural phenomenon. There's nothing supernatural in it. It is the chief corruption of the human soul after the fall that we have taken joy in making much of God and turned it into joy in being made much of ourselves. And therefore, God wanting to make us infinitely happy forever and ever will not save us in a way that enables us to boast at all, but will save us in a way from beginning to end so that He alone gets all the praise and all the glory. And we, here's what it feels like to be truly saved in your best moments, and you'll have a lot of these moments in eternity, namely all of them. 
to be saved is to forget yourself in the joy of making much of God. Oh, how seldom do we have those sweet moments. A total self-forgetfulness caught up out of ourselves, as it were, at the Alps or the Rockies or the Grand Canyon or some, yes, even movies. And you're not even thinking about yourself. You're just caught up into grandeur or glory or beauty or wonder or wisdom or justice or truth or power. And that's that's what you're made for. You are made for joy, but not joy in front of the mirror. But in front of God. And therefore, unconditional election which preserves for us the glory of God praised in every line of our salvation is good news because it takes from us every temptation to boast in ourselves, which is not eternally satisfying. Third reason it's good news. Unconditional election is good news because when you as a Christian, by grace, through faith, through Christ, crucified, risen for your sins, feel and know yourself loved by God, accepted by God, forgiven by God, embraced by God. Now, at that very moment when things begin to become fragile and questionable as you live your life, you can know because of this doctrine that the roots of God's salvation, the roots of God's commitment to save you are not shallow, but are infinitely deep. They go down mile after mile after mile in sovereign, unmerited, unconditional grace and never peep out on the other side of it into foreseen good works or foreseen faith where everything becomes fragile and contingent and dependent on you. Never. The roots never get out of grace. They just go down forever and ever into the councils of eternity. As a fragile Christian, that's good news to me. I eat the bread of that kind of stability. That's point two. It's good news. And there are other reasons besides those three. Third point in the outline. The reassertion of the doctrine in verse 16. Here's what it says. So then, and you can see by that word so that it's an inference drawn from verse 15. So verse 15 is functioning to support what went before and support what goes after. Verse 15 is very important, which is why I want to end on it. But first, just a look at verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion or on him who wills or runs, literally, but on God who has mercy. So we need to ask, what is the it here? It depends not on one who wills or one who runs. And it is probably the best biblical phrase to use for the it from the context. It's from verse 11. I'll take the phrase, 
God's purpose according to election. You see that phrase in verse 11? God's purpose according to election. Or we argued that it should be something like God's electing purpose. God's purpose according to election is not dependent on human will or human running or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, verse 16 is just a restatement of the doctrine that it is not conditional. It is not on your will. And the reason this verse is added and is so crucial is because it stresses the totality of the unconditionality. There are two things he mentions. Willing and running. That is, something in your volition and something in your body. Your volition starts acts and gets them going and your body acts them out. And he's saying, take those two things, willing and then acting. And he says, neither is the ground for election. You can't will your faith and say, aha, now I should be elect. It wasn't your willing that was the basis. And then you can't work hard and do loving acts and say, now it's because of that I should be elect. No, you were not elect because of that. Not because of your willing, not because of your running, but because of what? God. So that's the reassertion of the doctrine in verse 16. Now, finally, what's the basis of his claim that God is righteous to do this? God is just to choose one and not another before they had done anything good or evil. What's the argument in verse 15? You see that it's an argument because it begins with the word for or because. For, let's just make sure we get verse 14 in our minds. It's not as though there's any injustice with God, is there? God forbid there is no injustice or unrighteousness of God. For, verse 15, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a very strange argument. It does not sound like an argument. It sounds like a restatement of the problem. He's saying, all right, here's the problem. God, before they were born or had done anything good or evil, chose Jacob and not Esau. He asked, is there unrighteousness that he would choose Jacob without any reference to anything he had done or not done? And Paul says, no, there's no injustice because God said to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And you attempt to say, that's not an argument. That's a restatement. (laughs) That's the problem. In 1979, I've told you this story before. I'll tell it again. In 1979, I went to Walt Wessel, chairman of the Bible department at Bethel where I was teaching, and said, Walt, I want a sabbatical. I've been here six years, and, and I'd like to take my, my contractual sabbatical for all of the, all of the fall and the, and the interim term. And so I'd like to take from May through next January... And he said, fine, what are you going to work on? I said, I'm going to work on the word for at the beginning of verse 15 in Romans 9. And that's all I want to understand. If I could understand the word for 
at the beginning of verse 15 in Romans 9, I think my, my life would be changed and I would be able to teach these classes a lot more fruitfully. And that's what I did. From May of 79 through January of 80, all I did was study Romans 9, trying to come to terms with whether that's an argument. How is this an argument? How is verse 15 an argument? All I did. There were two results from that sabbatical. This book, and I don't know whether they have any out there or not, but if if they're out there, um, this is my best shot. I can't begin to tell you everything that needs to be said in these sermons, but this book called The Justification of God, which could be paraphrased, the validity of the word for at the beginning of verse 15 of Romans 9. (laughs) That's what it means. I have, that's all I've done. I had to do 23 verses to understand one verse, so it, it, it says somewhere here a study of Romans 9, 1 to 23. So I commend it to you. This is very, this is very hard sledding. This is not um, easy reading, and it's just for those of you who want to go further. The other effect of that sabbatical was that I quit at Bethel. I resigned. And the reason I resigned is because as I studied Romans 9 and began to see what I'm going to share with you now in the last few minutes of this message, the meaning of Romans 15. I felt what never have I felt since and had never felt before, a a call from teaching to preaching to say, this God of Romans 9 is not simply to be analyzed or explained. He is to be proclaimed. He is to be worshipped. He is to be loved. He is to be died for in missions. And so I quit and said, I want to I wanna be a pastor where I could take a people like this who are all over the map theologically, little children up through older people and say, let's go. Let's get a handle on this God. Let's be in his hands. Let's become so radically devoted to the God-centeredness of God that we will lay our lives down to bring others into the joy of knowing this God. And that's what I've been trying to do for 23 years now. The argument hangs on two keys, or it has two keys that unlock it. The argument of Romans 9.15 is what we're looking at now. There are two keys, and what I want to do is just summarize what they are. I do want you to see the whole argument in summary form as we draw this to a close. Here are the two keys. One has to do with the, the Old Testament context of verse 15, namely Exodus 33:19, And the other has to do with Paul's understanding of righteousness. Paul has a very particular God-centered definition of justice or righteousness in his mind. It is not probably going to square with what you've inherited as a definition of justice or righteousness. Let's take key number one first. If you would like to look at Exodus 33, 19, let's go back there. The key is the context. He is quoting Exodus 33, 19 when he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. What is the meaning of that statement in that context? That's the question, because Paul plucked it out. He didn't get that out of nowhere. You know, he wasn't just writing along and saying, huh, what would be an interesting text to quote? Oh, 30, Exodus 33, 19. That wouldn't just come to your mind. He has thought very deeply about where can I go to help people grasp the nature of God and the nature of what it means to be God and to be righteous and be gracious in the Old Testament. And he gets it here 
The context is this. Moses is arguing with God, wrestling with God, asking God, don't, don't let us go up to the promised land without you. We need you to go with us. And in verse 18, he says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responds, I will make my goodness pass before you. I'll make my name pass before you. I will declare to you, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. How how would you put all that together? Glory, goodness, name, freedom in showing mercy to whom he wills. How do you put all that together? What's, What's going on here? Here's my effort, and then I'll try to show another text that supports it. I think he's saying something like this. Show me your glory. I want to see your essence. I want to see your magnificence. I want to see the essential you. And God says, all right, here it comes. You won't be able to see it. I have to show you my backside. But what you're going to get is words and vision. And the words are these. Here comes my goodness, my name. And the essence of my goodness and my name is, I'm free to have mercy on whom I have mercy and be gracious to whom I be gracious. I think that sentence, I'll be gracious to whom I be gracious, which is the one Paul quotes in Romans 9.15, is a defining, essential statement about the name of God. Now, here's some support for that. Do you remember the other place in the book of Exodus that Paul, Moses, is asking about God's name? Remember chapter 3? Burning bush. Go down there, Moses. And he says, well, what shall I tell them about who sent me? What name shall I tell them about the God who sent me? He says in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. What's your name? I am who I am. Show me your glory. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, pull these together here. The structure grammatically and linguistically are identical I am who I am. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. What's the point of these? The structure is the same. And what you get from chapter 3 to chapter 33 is an advance of application. What he's saying is, I am who I am. That's my name. Is My essence, my being is freedom, self-existence. Nobody made me the way I am. I didn't come into being. I didn't consult with any manual about how to become God. I am reality. All other reality is relative. I'm absolute. Everything defines itself by me. I give existence. Nobody defines or gives me existence. I am God. That's what it means to be God, to be self-existent. Now, how does a God 
who defines himself like that, act. And he says, show me your glory, God. I will show you my glory. Here's my name. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'm gracious to who I am gracious. In other words, he's not only free in his being, he's free in his action. He's not only self-existent, he's self-determining. There are no constraints or controls outside God, making God be what he is or making God do what he does. This is the meaning of Godness. G-O-D in English means, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I am who I am. Now that's the first key for understanding the argument of Romans 9.15. You've got to understand when Paul says, there is no unrighteousness with God, for he said to Moses, this is who I am. This is my essence. This is my name. This is my glory. I have mercy freely. Not by constraint of any will or running of men. That's key number one. Now key number two is, what does Paul mean by righteousness? And here we need a long time to argue from the Old Testament. And maybe we'll do some of that in three weeks. And we could argue from Romans 3, 1 to 8. We could argue from Romans 3, 25 and 26 for the definition I'm about to give you. But I'm just going to give it to you. And then put the two keys together and unlock the door. And then we'll pick it up later. The second key is the definition of righteousness, which goes like this. God's righteousness is his unwavering commitment to always uphold and display the honor of his name and the greatness of his glory. God's righteousness is his unwavering, unswerving faithful commitment to uphold the honor of his name and the greatness of his glory. Now, to help you see why that would be called righteousness, think of this. The most fundamentally right thing to do in the universe for God or anybody else is to value most what is most valuable and act accordingly. To value most what is most valuable and then act accordingly. What is most valuable? Answer, the glory of God. The name of God is the most valuable reality. We are way, 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 way down on the list of values in the universe. God is infinitely valuable. Therefore, for God to value most what is most valuable, he must value his glory and value his name and therefore act accordingly, which is why I define righteousness as the unwavering commitment to do what's right, namely value and uphold his honor, his majesty, his glory. Now, there are many texts I can take you to to show you that that is the biblical definition of God's righteousness at its root. But let me just put the two keys together and draw this to a close. Now we have two keys to make sense out of the argument in verse 15. And remember what he's arguing for. There's no unrighteousness with God in unconditional election. Why? Because, one, God's name, his essence, his glory 
is freedom in the dispensing of mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy is a summary of his freedom to be unfettered by any human constraints or any demonic constraints so that he does what he does without consulting us. That's his name. Second key, his righteousness is to uphold his name. Therefore, to be righteous, he must elect unconditionally. I think that's Paul's argument. It's an argument rooted in the very nature of what it means to be God. We tend to come at God with all of our human limitations, all of our conceptions on what it would mean for us to be God. Well, if I were God, well, you're not God, and you don't have a clue what it means to be God. We will learn what it means to be God from God, or we will not learn it at all. And God is telling us here what it means to be God. It means I am who I am, and I have mercy upon whom I have Mercy. The freedom of God is the essence of his glory and his righteousness is to uphold his glory and therefore be free. And therefore he elects unconditionally in righteousness. Let me close with a reminder about the good news of this doctrine because I know there are people downtown and I know there are people here who, if you were honest, and you probably are very honest, are despairing of your soul. You are among those who say, I've sinned in too many ways. I've gone back on God too many times. I have done things that if you knew, you wouldn't hold out hope for me. I know there are people like that in these rooms. And I want to say, not just generally, but now in your face, don't make a God out of your sin. Don't lift up your sin in the face of the free, sovereign, self-existent, self-determining God and say, you can't have elected me. That's arrogant. Despair is rooted in arrogance. I call you not just to feel broken, but to be broken and to let God be God. He elects unconditionally. You may not blackmail him with your despair. Lay it down. Listen to his promise. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in this room or downtown, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10:13, in the authority of God and in the name of Jesus, I call you. Trust Christ and stop negotiating with your despair. And secondly, when that happens, and it's happened for most of you in this room, when that happens, glory in praising God for your salvation, not boasting in your faith or any other trait that you have. Glory that he's done it all. Just find endless ways to say, I love you, thank you, praise you. And then thirdly, as we go out of here, some of you, I talked to one fellow who won't be back for two years, last hour, and with tears we said goodbye. Some of you are are going for a long time. And as you go, 
Take that security that's got roots down into bottomless grace. Take that security and that strength and that joy and lay your lives down to tell other people about the free grace of God. Lay your lives down. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't beat people up with your theology. Be meek and humble and lowly and serve people. Lay your lives down for the most in-your-face unbeliever or the most hostile person in another religion, in another place or across the cubicle. Go this week and in the power and strength of having been loved and forgiven and accepted and chosen freely, 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 